It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We are the publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me today is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. You held down the fort for me for a couple of weeks. Thanks for doing that, Bill. Certainly. Good morning, Joe. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. No question. Uh, good panel again today. We have a couple of uh, folks who have been on before. Ambrose Clancy, uh, editor of the Shelter Island Reporter. Good morning, Ambrose. Morning, Joe. Good to have you. Uh, Steve Wick, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Hey, Joe. How you doing? It's good to see you again. Good to be on. Good to have you back. And a uh, newcomer this week is one of our own, Steve Coates. He's a staff writer for the Express News Group. Hey, Steve. Good morning. So uh, let's talk pot. <laughs> let's let's wake and bake. You hold them? <laughs> this is this is the uh, the hot topic right now um, with the uh, with the governor signing legislation recently that legalized recreational marijuana uh, and begins the process of making it legal to trade in the drug. Uh, locally, uh, a lot of the local governments are going to have some decisions to make about whether or not they're going to allow the sale of marijuana. Um, and it's it, the uh, Long Island. I know a lot of the communities have mixed feelings about it. Steve, what's what's the attitude been up your way up in Riverhead and on the North Fork? It's It's been discussed at the Greenport Village uh, meeting, uh, South Old Town Board and Riverhead Town Board. And it, it's de- decidedly mixed. Um Greenport seems anxious about it. Uh, there's a couple of members of the board, the town board in Southhold and Riverhead that obviously are favoring what they hope will be some sort of a cash infusion down the road. Although other people say that it's not going to be anywhere near the kind of money that people are hoping for. But it, it's the people I talk to in Kutchard, where I live, uh, are almost universally against it. They're worried about their neighbor growing this stuff in the backyard and the law allows for five pounds, I think, in the house. Um, police are worried that there's no way to really know after you pull someone over. It's not like a breathalyzer or anything. And then this morning I was looking at a quote in Newsday about um, they quoted a local businesswoman up west. And listen to this quote, because this, this would scare the hell out of people in Greenport. Quote, I would love to be on a full on cannabis cafe said so-and-so, resembling the smoke shops and and cafes in Amsterdam. Quote, a place you can go, consume marijuana, and hang out with your friends all day. I think that would be really cool. Now, in Greenport, that very confined space along, let's say, Front Street, you know, you take your kids or your grandkids to the carousel, then you walk over to look at the ships by, you know, Claudio's or something, and you walk by a a hookah lounge, and, you know, the pot smoke's pouring out. This I think of all places that it probably the lounges probably wouldn't work, it would be Greenport. But you know the the counter argument to that is Amsterdam, which remains a, a great place to visit and a perfectly functioning city, uh, despite having had these lounges for uh, it's been what decades uh, more than a de- decades, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's it's an interesting question. What are, what are you guys hearing locally on the South Fork and on Shelter Island? about the reaction to this, because the local governments really are going to have the final word on whether the, the, you know, 
possession of marijuana is going to be legal everywhere, but the well, sale and the, and the growing too. And I, I think Steve Steve mentioned that. But whether whether the governments opt in or opt out, I mean, it's going to be opting out of, of the lounges, you know, the retail sales and, and lounges. Right. People are still going to be able to grow it regardless and possess it. I think on Shelter Island, it's pretty clear that the supervisor, Jerry Siller, um, and the police chief, Jim Reed, have said that they would hope that the town would opt out to retail sales. Um, I think that will be the general consensus of the board, too, when they come to vote on a local law on it. I think that probably I don't think there'll be much pushback from uh, from residents about it. Yeah, is that right? And, and we don't think that the money is going to be a deciding factor uh, because I feel like local governments have the are they're going to miss out on a revenue opportunity if they do opt out. But well, Scott Russell, that, the, the Southwold supervisor, excuse me, uh, Joe, uh, yesterday was saying that um, he doesn't think the revenue will be what the state is hoping for. Um, you know, the, the Democratic leader of the county, Richie Schaefer was strenuously arguing the other day that uh, every town in, in Suffolk County should opt out. And he seems to have sort of backed off on that. But he was adamant that, you know, everybody should back out of this. And I haven't talked to him about it. I was going to try to call him today and, and find out about it. But I think Scott Russell's position is, well, if this doesn't bring in the big bucks everyone is hoping for, then what do you do next? Uh, how, do you, how do you modify the law to make it more profit, you know, more revenue driven? And, and a lot of that revenue, my my understanding, a lot of that revenue would be earmarked. I mean, it's not money that would then go into general fund. It's not like it, it's this this cash cow that that, you know, that just adds to the budget. I mean, some of it's it would be spent specifically on, um, you know, marijuana programs and, and that that type of thing. Or am I wrong? I, I believe that's right. It's, yeah. The law is actually very confusing. And, yeah. none of, you know, as we have a letter in yesterday's Suffolk Times from Greg Dorosky, who's a Democratic candidate for the town board, he's arguing to opt out because he's, you know, his position is it's a very, a very slippery slope once you start going down this road. But if it doesn't bring in the money they're hoping for, then I'm, I don't know where you go next. Well, isn't it good, a question of, of freedom uh, to allow people to smoke pot and not about revenue? You know, I mean, maybe the government should look for other yeah. ways to make money. I mean, I think you know, there's also a, the idea of decriminalizing, yeah. you know, smoking cannabis or using cannabis is is so important. I mean, um, yeah, it seems to me, really need seems to to me it seems to me that if the local governments opt out, what it does is continue the black market trade of, of marijuana. It's going to be a lot more complicated because possession is no longer going to be a crime. Um, and, and you know, one of the things we, we did a podcast yesterday, uh, our 27 Speaks podcast with Scott Falkowski, who uh, runs Open Minded Organics, and he's a cannabis advocate uh, from Sag Harbor. And we talked about the fact that legalization there's a lot of talk about safety in the community and concerns about safety. But when it comes to cannabis, legalization is probably going to make it a much safer drug than it is whenever it's a black market product. And I wonder if the communities are thinking about that as far as when you choose to opt out, you continue to, to make this 
a criminal enterprise. Well, and decriminalizing also would eliminates the targeting of of the you know the disadvantaged communities that you know that for years yeah. and, and decades and decades that you know people in 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 you know those communities, poor communities, black communities, minority communities have, have been targeted and and suffer the most from from the criminalization. The, yeah, uh, the police true. chief on Shelter Island also was making a point about um, enforcement, and he was saying that if you're at, at the beach and you have a family at the beach and people right next to you are smoking marijuana, um, how do you enforce that if people are complaining? And somebody, it might have been the chief himself, who just mentioned, well, just uh, ban smoking at the beach. And there are going to be, there's going to be have to be a rejiggering of rules, I would think. That's going to make the hedge fund guys who smoke their big fat cigars down at the ocean beaches very upset. <laughs> but that is the law, right? It's going to follow. If you can smoke tobacco, you can smoke marijuana. Exactly. So, exactly. But the thing is, Joe, the impetus of this is not fairness or the, you know, this asinine prosecution of people who smoke pot. I mean, what, what a ridiculous thing that is. The impetus for this is money. And that's right. the only reason they're doing it. They're not doing it to be fair. They're not doing it to, because you can't really put people in jail. It's it's terribly unfair to jail somebody over smoking pot, for heaven's sakes. This is about money. And it just feels to some people anyway that, okay, we can agree with part of this, but we're saying that the revenue probably won't be the huge pile of cash you need. And then over here, as everyone knows, we have a lot of farmland some of the best in the state of New York. And if the revenue is not what the state needs, you know, $350, $400 million just to close gaps. And then they say, well, this 12 plant rule is kind of silly. Why don't we expand that to see if we can make some more? And then you're going to see people like, uh, and again, I'm, I don't know anything about their own personal business plans, but a guy like Soloviev who owns a lot of land over here and they're expanding and growing maybe they start to build these specialty greenhouses where you could grow these things in larger quantity. So you've had two generations out here of spending taxpayers' money to preserve prime farmland for farming purposes. Is there a way, again, if the revenue isn't what it's supposed to be, is, is there a future in which some of this farmland that we've spent so much money to preserve ends up as marijuana plants i mean well, why not i mean hempstead i mean hemp was once a major cash crop in this country mm -hmm. why not and uh, and it's interesting because the the agricultural community here has been focused on uh high return cash crops for years when you when the land is of such high value you can't just grow potatoes and you've got to grow some higher cash yeah, return crops make money that's why there's no yeah. potatoes anymore and i and i can't imagine <laughs> To Steve's point, though, I, I think that there's a difference between, you know, growing potatoes in an open field and building, um, you know, brick brick based greenhouses that, that cover the land that may not have the same uh, appeal as, you know, as, as open farmland. It starts to look a little more commercial and industrial if, if that's what you're doing. I don't I don't know that 
that you would have fields of marijuana plants, I think, in, in order to get the quality that you want. It's got to be in these these bulky greenhouses. Yeah, they found in California and Colorado that you can't really grow it outside. I mean, mm-hmm. in this climate, you need these specialty greenhouses and not just a greenhouse where you grow tulips. It's got to be really, really temperature controlled, lots of sunlight. Kind of someone actually said to me yesterday, the best place to grow it would be in, inside an empty big box store. Exactly. <laughs> so Riverhead, Riverhead is marijuana capital. And then you got to start putting security guards around it in case the trucks don't pull up in the middle of the night and empty mm-hmm. the whole place out. Sure. So again, I think the people who have reservations about this are just worried what the next step is. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. That, that's something um, Dave Falkowski pointed out yesterday was terroir is really not a factor with marijuana. You can grow marijuana most efficiently and and, and really the highest quality marijuana is grown in greenhouses hydroponically and you, you, you know, soil and sun and all of that is, is less of a factor for growing marijuana. You want to well, make it really interesting. Quick- if, if one of the papers, if, if a reporter, I think Newsday will probably do it, make a bunch of calls in Colorado and find out was, did it work out the way they wanted? Was it the revenue they thought? And what were the social costs? I know I've read that there's still a black market for some reason. I don't quite understand. Sure. There's sure. still a black market. Steve Coates, you, you had something? Yeah. I was just going to say two quick points. One, as far as whether or not green uh, um, ban, uh, greenhouses could be banned, I think we've gone through that with uh, horse riding facilities on the South Fork. I mean, ag markets law allows you to have a you know a, a riding stable as an agricultural use. That's one thing. For, for growing uh, polo ponies, correct? Exactly. And yeah. uh, a bumper crop of polo ponies, of a ploponies. Ploponies. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then the other thing is that uh, you're talking about growing it indoors. I mean, there's there's been a number of cases in the 30 years I've lived out here where people have been caught only because their electric bill is so high. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and see, so it'll change. I mean, the law changes so much of that equation. But I'm going to be very intrigued to see how the local uh, governments evaluate all of the the pluses and minuses here. And it's going to be very interesting if Long Island ends up being sort of uh, an exception to the rule. And I I just I'm having trouble grasping how that would work. I I think it would have to be an all or nothing thing. Like Steve Steve was talking about Richie Schaefer calling for everybody to to opt out. And I think if all the towns opted out and all the villages, then that would be one thing. But. I think once you start with one here, one there, it just it snowballs and everybody's just going to have to do it. Otherwise, people are, you know, people aren't coming to your to your town or they're just, you know, they're they're going to the town next door and, and buying it. And, and right. I mean, if Southall didn't do it, Bill, but Riverhead did. Yeah, I, mean, I don't see how that's going to work. Exactly. Also, there's there is a giant uh, flaw in this argument, which is the Shinnecock Nation, which which yeah, absolutely point. has plans to sell recreational marijuana, or at least is looking into the the possibility. They were planning on creating a dispensary for medical marijuana. It would only make sense that they're going to to sell uh, recreational marijuana at some point. So all of the municipalities could ban it, uh, and it would still be pretty readily available right here. Now, where would they sell it, Joe? Right at the tobacco shops? Sure. I mean, I would think so, yeah. And, and I think there's an interesting question. I haven't really been able to get the answer to this because the way the law is set up at the moment, because they haven't put the framework in place for sales yet, there's, there's, uh, it'll be 18 months probably till, till there's a regulatory framework. But I wonder if 
if I owned a smoke shop on Shinnecock territory, if I could begin selling marijuana immediately because nobody's crossing state lines to buy it, um, it's not illegal to possess it. Um, I think you could make the argument that it's that it's illegal to sell it, but and, it's and Shinnecock not, territory. They're not they're, part of New York State. Right. They're not bound by the state. Do it now. Right. I do believe, though, that the tribe wants to uh, set up their own regulations before right. they okay anyone. Mim- mimicking the states. And I think they've applauded the, the, the states. And let's say they're the only one, Bill. And yeah, Joe, exactly. If, if they're the only ones on the five East End towns, can you imagine the traffic yeah. getting to the res, to a smoke shop? That, I mean, people from all over Long Island would be going there. Well, if they're, if they're smart, they'll jump the gun and they'll, and that's going to happen regardless. I don't think they're going to wait a year and a half until everybody else can do it. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't think. I mean, they're still considering it, like Joe said, and they're going to have a vote on it and, and they're going to have to discuss it as, you know, as, as a nation. But, um, boy, it, it sure would be smart to get a year head start on and everybody else if they're going to go ahead and do that. I mentioned it last week, but I was driving by. Um, you know, the other day, and I've noticed that one of the the smoke shops that used to be just, you know, pretty much cigars and, or, and cigarettes and, and stuff is now labeled itself as, as a head shop. Um, oh, really? Overtly and is, is selling um, advertising, you know, bongs and, and, and other paraphernalia and stuff. And I, I wonder if that's um, a sign of things to come. A first step, you know. That's yeah, cool. and interesting. I didn't know that. I also... I, I have to wonder if if some of the villages might be missing an opportunity here, because I think that there will be sort of a culture, almost a microbrewery type of a culture yeah. where some of the smoke shops and, and some of the lounges um, would would be considered sort of boutiques. And, and it might fit really nicely into uh, a resort areas, uh, what we're trying to pitch to people. So I, I don't know. I, I, I will be I will look forward to the debate. And I think it's kind of a kind of an intriguing one. I have no idea how it's all going to turn out. And it's very rare that that's the case. <laughs> So thank you. Uh, that that's that's uh, a good overview of that. I think for for how we're talking about it out here. This is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're from the Express News Group. Uh, our panel today is Ambrose Clancy from the Shelter Island Reporter, Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group, and our own Steve Coates from the Express News Group. Uh, let's go to Ambrose and talk about the big issue on Shelter Island right now, which is about beach access. Can you can you sort of sketch out for us, Ambrose, exactly what the the debate is over there right now? Yes, I think it's um, I think it's been debated uh, a long time before on most East End towns and most beach communities. Um, and it's the it's you know who has access to the shoreline. Um, it goes back. It's it's called a public trust benefit that that people are allowed to use the shoreline. And it goes way back and doing some research on it, it goes back to Roman law. It goes back to English common law that residents of a place have access to a, a beach or a shoreline uh, a, below the high tide, medium high tide line. What happened last summer uh, on Shelter Island was there is a little beach, like most things on Shelter Island, it's little, little beautiful beach at the end of a place called Bootleggers Alley. And it was discovered as a tremendous place to fish and picnic. And people from the city and up island came out. 
on lots of them. There would be, for Shelter Island, lots of them, there would be close to 100 or 150 people coming out to fish and picnic there. Um, they, a lot of them didn't uh, obey the, the high tide line mark. They also were picnicking, they were, and so they were leaving a lot of trash, not picking it up, and they were also using the dunes as toilets. And people who live on or near Shelter Island were up in arms about it. And it got kind of nasty, and there were racist overtones to it. Um, there were, because a lot of uh, the people who came out were Latinx families. Um, and there were also paranoid things, and they, there were people saying, you know, these, these folks are coming from the most infected parts of the city during the pandemic. So the town did what it could, and what they did was have parking regulations, and they put in two porta potties, which made the people on Bootleggers Alley even more upset by the by the way it looked. Um, so they're trying to figure it out for this summer. Um, they're looking at laws about uh, making it illegal to sleep in your car because people, some people, would take the last ferry over and crash in their cars, and then. Uh, be ready early in the morning for, for fishing. Uh, and they're looking at all kinds of other reg parking regulations. The, they're charging for, they've always charged for non-residents to have beach stickers on their cars. Residents, of course, get a sticker for free. I think in South Town, Steve can talk about it a bit more, that last summer, uh, all resident, all non-residents were banned, couldn't get a sticker, couldn't get any access to the beach. It was a real mess here last year. So, and, and it was real mess. It's they're they're gearing up for it again. Um, there are some people who say <clears throat> you should have access to the shoreline. This is a this is an, an ancient and, and a, a correct law that you should be able to, below the high tide line, you should be able to have that. Um, and then there are people, a lot of people are saying, you know, not in my neighborhood, you can't. But am I correct, Ambrose, that that's a fairly unique thing that we have here that other communities like in, in the Carolinas and in Florida, that they don't have those kinds of access. Uh, You're right. I mean, that's a that's a relatively rare thing that we have here. I, I agree that I think it's a wonderful thing, but um, it isn't common across yeah. uh, the entire United States. To the credit of um, most people in in town government, they've uh, they really asked for calm and they've made statements such as the supervisor saying um, you've got to welcome people. You know, if they if they have a right to to be there, you have to welcome them. Um, so it's it's ongoing and they're 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 working the board and the town government is working really quickly to get something going sort of for Memorial Day. I think it's more complicated than just you have the right to go there. There was a beach issue in Southhold last year where the homeowners really got upset because there were people down there camping on the beach. The trash in the morning was absolutely incredible. There are no toilet facilities. They were finding dirty diapers, people defecating in the in the sand, you know, near their homes. And they were just going to the town saying, you know, we're not trying to close people off from using the beach, but this is completely out of control. And then the town was trying to scramble a way to how to kind of figure it out. And they're just doing it again this time. There's places like New Suffolk. They're trying to inst institute parking regulations to keep 
miles of cars from parking along the side of, of residential streets and people walking to the beach. Do we, do we think it's going to be the same issue this year as, as, you know, COVID kind of lightens up a little bit? I know we had the same, some of the same issues and Steve, Steve Coates wrote about, um, wrote about it in, in Shinnecock. There was a beach in Shinnecock North Hills. North sea. Was it North Sea? There was also one in Shinnecock Hills. Yeah. Both. Where, where there were a lot of people from the city coming out, same, same kind of issues. Um, you know, trash and, and, and some, you know, charges of, of, of racist, you know, comments and discrimination and all that. And a lot of that just had to do with the city had closed off, uh, you know, fishing areas and beaches in the city. And somebody had gotten, you know, there were online telling people to come out here that there were, you know, no restrictions. And, you know, at Southampton Town, Supervisor Jay Schneiderman, the town board have, I think, been working for a year on on those same parking issues. And that seems to be the way they're they're all choosing to to kind of try to regulate this through parking, but I'm just wondering if if we think that there's going to be the same issues, you know, is, is city not allowing fishing, um, you know, in, in those areas, and whether there will be this rush out here this summer? Or are we hoping that um, you know, as more people get vaccinated and the numbers are are lower, that we're not going to face the the same issues? What do you think, Steve Coates? Will it make a difference? Oh, uh, I don't. I really don't know, to be honest. I mean, I don't know. I feel like the virus probably heightened what was already there, but what Maybe. was already there was already there. And I think I think it's still there. And I'm not sure it's going to yeah. change. I think there's there's sort of a, a there's a there's certainly a, a legitimate feeling of, you know, hey, we live in this neighborhood. This is also our beach and we have a we have a right to expect you to respect it. Mm -hmm. But it does spill over a little bit occasionally with some people into sort of nativistic kinds of feelings. Which, and, which, and which, which public is being served? Is, are there two publics? And I think that was yeah. uh, you know, part of the story that, you know, that in Ambrose's paper was was talking about who is the public? Who's being served? Is it local residents? Is it local taxpayers? Or is it, you know, the, the public in general? Anybody? Does, does anybody have access to that beach? Um, just being a, you know, being a resident of, of the country. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Steve, you you were down there in North Sea uh, and you spoke to some of those folks, right? Um, yep. What, what did they have to say on, on both sides? Well, the, the, the people who were coming out from the city were just they wanted some fresh air because they had no place to go in the city. And it became they didn't know about the, the East End, you know, I mean, people living in Queens and Brooklyn, whatever, they didn't really know about it. And so someone would come out and say, oh, my God, this is cool. And tell three th friends and those three friends would tell three more friends. And, um, you know, so I mean, it, but it was crowded. There's no doubt about it. It was crowded. And there was I saw garbage and I and, and I, I understand I can get it. I mean, the. The roads were 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 backed up. The the, the traffic that the parking was backed up for about a mile, um, and it would have been really hard uh, if there'd even been an ambulance call or a fire call. Um, I think so, that yeah. also the uh, and Steve again, Steve Wick again can speak to it more than I can. But I think that um, in Southold, the supervisor talked about last summer as being draconian rules that they want to try to uh, alleviate um, because no residents were allowed to to park, you know, or go to the beach. Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, it, it really got uh, a mess. It was a mess here last summer. It really was a mess. 
And there's there were some neighborhoods were asking a cop to come down and and police the traffic and and there were there weren't enough dumpsters to take care of the trash. But the big change I think that the pandemic brought out here with people staying over, people sleeping on the beach, people fishing on the beach, um, people just getting out from the city. Um, there was definitely a racial factor involved. I don't think there's any question about that. But I went to that one beach um, on Maine Bayview that the homeowners were talking about, and there was just a massive amount of trash. And people looking out their window and seeing people defecating in, in, the, in the sand is a little alarming. So they're going to have to figure out some way to manage this. As for the question of whether this summer will be better, I would think it would be, but I think the crowds are now here and they've discovered it. They know about it. I don't, I don't know how you go backwards. Yeah. Except that I think that maybe people, you know, there won't be the need to, to go as far. Um, right. You know, what do you mean uh, geographically well, if, or you live? Yeah. And if you're living in the city, you don't necessarily have to come up. But I think that once you've discovered, you know, these beaches, it's like, it's hard to go back to Coney Island. You know, I mean, it's true. this is all in a, in a larger context too, Bill, we, we've been talking for years about the eroding, the erosion of uh, access to the beachfront and the fight over who actually gets to access it, whether it's uh, driving on the beach, parking on the beach, all of that. These, this is becoming, uh, it's, it's become more and more of a problem in so many different ways. I wonder if the next five or 10 years are, are going to bring about some, some real significant change or if there's going to need to be some real significant effort to clarify some of this. I think you'll see further privatization of, of the beaches like you talked about and further, you know, erosion of, you're going to say, the dog and patent, um, which is something, you know, we deal with on, on the South Shore, the colonial era, um, you know, legislation that, that allowed that access. But but look, I mean, beach access is is, is in a lot of areas been, been a myth for, for generations. Try to go to some of the West the, or the beaches and in some of the villages, if you don't have a parking sticker, you can walk on. But how do you, how are you getting there? Are you riding your bike there? Are you walking there? Are you having um, a plug Uber? Are you having Uber drop you off there? I, I mean, the the choice beaches have, have always been kind of restricted and regulated to town and, and village residents, with a few pockets of of free trustee beaches here and there. Um, the you know the beach driving has has shrunk from you know from multiple beaches to you know to to one one specific beach in in southampton and southampton town so so yeah you've seen that degradation and i think you'll continue to see that yeah. it's a great point that i'm not sure um everybody understands and i think the truck beach situation in east hampton is sort of a great illustration of it which is truck beach is a public beach and it remains a public beach behind a bunch of residential properties but if you're not allowed to park on Truck Beach, there is literally no place to park. So you'd have to park somewhere and walk a mile and a half to get to it. So beach with, access with, with is your also cooler and your blankets. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, so be, beach access is really rooted in parking. And, and although we're talking here about just sort of overcrowding on the beaches, the parking of it is one way that the town's and villages are able to sort of uh, keep, 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 yeah, to clamp down a little bit. And and uh, I just, I, it's a fascinating debate yeah. to me. And, and it's it's always been something that makes this region really special, I think. And I think on a larger point, what they found out on the North Fork is that 
they, these beaches have been here for years. You have the state park out in Orient that has very limited parking. They just couldn't handle the crowds. There's just not enough room. There's not enough parking. Um, I think for generations, yeah, there were always issues of getting to the beach. But then all of a sudden, thousands of more people came and realized that these beaches, as great as they are, there's simply not enough of them. And the ones that are there are were overwhelmed. There were there were days last summer where the state park in Orion um, was had a had a flag at the entrance at eight thirty in the morning. No more cars. Uh, there's just there's not and these facilities aren't big. It's not Jones Beach where you there's a, you know you, you can take five hundred cars and park them. This this is the east end of Long Island really can't handle the massive crowds that you saw last summer. There's just not room for them. And I think someone texted me last night to say that the ferry line from Greenport to Shelter Island last night, a Thursday night, again, these are people avoiding Montauk Highway and Sunrise to get to their homes. The line went up onto Front Street and then west towards the high school. Wow. So you, you, you can see now what this is all doing. You have too much traffic on one side, and they're going to try to go, you know, skirt it and go across Shelter Island. But that the line there last night was supposedly the longest people had, had ever seen. There's just not room here for this. The, Ambrose, uh, that's got to be a topic of conversation. Over here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's um, it's start it's starting early. And so it started last um, last March when all of a sudden uh, March was July on Shelter Island. Everybody was out. Everybody was there. Everybody was coming out from the city. People, weekenders and second homeowners were out and it's remained the same. Also, some people didn't become part-time residents. They became full-time residents. Uh, you yeah. can see that in the, the jump in school population. The thing about public beaches, as you said, Joe, it's a public beach. It, <clears throat> unless there's got to be some kind of fundamental change in the law that like I started talking about that goes way back that there is a public trust benefit, you know, below the high tide line, you, you and I and everybody else has a right to it. So will there be this fundamental change in law? I kind of doubt it. Uh, people are using, as, <clears throat> as Steve was talking about, using other piecemeal methods about parking restrictions and parking stickers, and it might work, um, who knows? Well, you know, what's interesting, too, is that, that the access is rooted in, as you said, I mean, in some cases, I think it's 18th and 17th century law. But the problem is those laws are so antiquated now, they don't really take into consideration the modern, you know, the fact that you've got to drive on. Some people want mm -hmm. to be able to park on the beach to access it. And True. Uh, yeah. it's but not just about gathering sea, seaweed anyway. But you got to look at the spirit spirit of those laws too and the yes. spirit was access for everybody and and i think that that we if you're, be careful not to lose that and if you yeah. live in bensonhurst and you want to go fishing and somebody said there's a great place on shelter island and you want to go out and obey all the laws uh and fish below the high tide line and have a picnic with your family um will you will you say no can't do that. But how do you get to below the high tide line? You have to go you over somebody's. You have to go over land that's not below the high tide line. Unless you're well, not at all. You just, just take the launch from your motor yacht. 
<laughs> you could do that. You could access Rob. Steve, you're the one. You're the one of us, Steve Coates, who I know puts a line in the water now and then. Um, what do you see differently out there when you're when you go out fishing? Is there more? Is it just generally? Are there more people out there? Well, this. I mean. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm the world's worst fisherman and I, you know, I got at the world's worst times and all that, but I am, um, I, last year it was busy and it was, it was kind of funny because people, people sort of gave me my space because they were worried about COVID. And, um, but I had a lot of kids, little kids sort of standing around watching when I'd reel in yet another undersized bass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> More people getting the enjoyment of coming out to do that, too. And I think you're right. I think everybody agrees that maintaining that access is crucial. But but I but it's, it's just how we do that is going to be the real challenge, I think. Yeah. Once the 500 parking spots are filled up on the Sound Beach in Southhold, what do you do? Absolutely. And I yes. think that's the challenge we're all facing. I drove all the way out here. I have the right to be there. Yeah, but there's nowhere for you to go. Right. It's happening in so many of our communities right now. No question. Oh, wait. This is this is behind the headlines. Uh, WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Ambrose Clancy of the Shelter Island Reporter on our panel today, along with Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group and Steve Coates from our own Express News Group. Um, so, Steve, let's uh, Steve Coates. That is, let's talk about Sag Harbor a little bit. Uh, it's a interesting time to be reporting on Sag Harbor uh, specifically. Uh, there are many, many changes being proposed uh, in Sag Harbor right now, and it's almost too much for one reporter to keep up with, but you're doing a, a valiant job, I think, in, in doing that. Uh, in the broadest of strokes, can you sketch out for our listeners what is happening in Sag Harbor right now? Yeah, well, Bay Street Theater, which was founded in 1991 and has leased space uh, next to Long Wharf um, so since that time, has been looking for a new home for a decade. Uh, they organized a group called Friends of Bay Street, and for full disclosure, the full name was Anne Sag Harbor Redevelopment. They purchased property uh, to build a new theater, and... Then they bought some more. It. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, but the issue is, is that there's also been, um, you know, it's mostly just a rumor fest. But but, you know, where there's rumors, there's often fact and um, that, that friends of Bay Street are buying up lots of property. Um, and all of a sudden it, it was interesting because when, when Bay Street announced these plans last October, there was sort of a, you know, oh, wow, this is interesting. This is cool. Um, but then the, the, the weeks turned into months and, you know, it's now it's a half a year or whatever. And they've just unveiled some plans and people say, oh, my God, this theater is big. Uh, they have plans to buy neighboring property to add to a park, but they won't reveal what their other plans are. And so all of a sudden the village woke up and now people are like, oh, my God, uh, the house is on fire. <laughs> I mean, and, um, and that's where we're at. And I mean, some of this is rooted in the fact that the the purchases that the Bay Street redevelopment folks are making um, are are going to displace some businesses. And so some of the conversation is about finding landing spots for those businesses. But that means expanding the idea of building a new theater into building a new theater 
district that includes business buildings and everything else, correct? I mean, this this starts to become just a remaking of a giant chunk of Sag Harbor. It- All at the same time when, when the village is um, exploring new new building codes for, for the waterfront and for the office right. district, which further complicates things. Yeah. Yeah, and the the, the village revisited the, the the waterfront zoning. I think principally, you know, no one will really say it, but I think principally because of a couple of condo buildings that were were approved as part of the deal that allowed the village to acquire what is now John Steinbeck Waterfront Park. And these buildings were given height variances. And if you look, I mean, they're tall. There's no no getting around it. Um, and one of them is a glass box. Uh, overlooking the water right next to the park. It's just that you wonder about <laughs> who's gonna, who wants to live in a glass house, um, especially in a park. Um, but the um, the village started to, they realized that, my God, the only tools we have in our planning toolbox, you know, is, is parking restrictions. And so they've started to look at ways to, to ease the development along the waterfront. And as part of that, and I, I don't want to get into all the zoning talk, it's too early in the morning, but they're, they're, <laughs> a, a, they're a, a doing a what they call a form-based code, which is more about trying to, is, uh, trying to encourage the types of buildings and uses that will reflect the, the desires of the community as opposed to just a strict dimensional code. And um, in, in, in doing this, there was talk about expanding some retail uses into the office district. And that happens to be the area where it appears that Friends of Bay Street and Sag Harbor Redevelopment, they've dropped that second half of their name. But that seems to be the area where they, they are focusing on buying property. And it's all rumor at this point, you know, uh, but it, it, it's a rumor that's being reported or being repeated rather in so many places that you know there is, you know, a, a, a healthy grain, grain of truth to it. Do you get a, a sense, Steve, of what the Sag Harbor Village government officials um, are, what their response has been to all this, how they're dealing with it, what what they're trying to to do to to guide this and, and whether or not they feel they, they've been on top of it? Um, the village initially was very supportive of Bay Street. And I and I you know I would I would have to say that you know the, uh, Mayor Kathleen Mulcahy actually went so far, for instance, as to write a letter to National Grid, uh, which owned a piece of property that's been used as a village parking lot for some time, you know, and, and backing Bay Street's effort to purchase that for a theater uh, uh, site. Um, and then she withdrew that support after the land which had been for sale was changed to a lease because then the village could try to lease it. Well, they ended up losing that battle. But I mean, I think the, 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 the village knew that Water Street shops where, where what Bay Street has purchased, they knew that that property was on the market. They knew these condos had been approved. Uh, there's other properties that could come into play, uh, you know, in, in, in the next couple of years. So they were they were certainly moving, moving in the right direction, whether or not they were able to move fast enough or whether or not they knew what was the tidal wave that was going to arrive is another thing. I mean, Ambrose, I know you're a, basically a ferry ride away 
from Sag Harbor over there. I wonder how closely you're keeping an eye on this and whether there's a conversation at all uh, taking place uh, on Shelter Island about what's happening in Sag Harbor. Not a lot. It's, uh, you know, um, across the moat kind of thing, but um, it's uh, we do. We do keep tabs on Sag Harbor, of course, because, like you said, it's it's the short ferry ride over um, and looking especially one thing for Shelter Islanders is uh, the cinema. What's going to happen with there? What's going on with there? Also, uh, the, the theater. Uh, but you know, we're interested in the doc, the doc festival. But I think the cinema is probably one of the big issues that that we're looking at all the time. Hey, Bill, the the Sag Harbor is just at the moment in such a state of flux. Uh, we're having trouble even sort of keeping a grasp on on all the, the proposals that are that are flying right now in Sag Harbor. And, and one of the things that 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 really did strike me was that Bay Street made their announcements in October. As of February, the, the, the village board was sort of pressing Bay Street for details. Well, you know, what are you buying? You know, why are you buying it? And they haven't gotten any answers, which is not has not helped Bay Street's cause. Bay Street's been very uh, closed lipped about the whole thing. And um it's not helping them uh, among the locals in Sag Harbor. Um, and I, I know that firsthand because I was mistaken for the developer uh, last week and was, uh, I thought I was going to get my nose broken. And um, <laughs> they, thought, they, thought, they thought you were the developer when you were yeah. taking pictures of the site, right? The prop of taking pictures of property. This guy, he gave me a tongue lashing, which I can't repeat on public radio. <laughs> <laughs> The, the village is just really, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens overall. It's just really hopping. And my understanding is even this winter, I mean, with all the, the influx of, of people during the pandemic, that it's just been, it's been like a winter of, of summer. It's just busy, busy all the time. Traffic that um, Ambrose mentioned the, the cinema, I think they're ready to go. They did a, a soft opening last week. We had a photo in Sag Harbor Express. Um, you know, last week about that. And it's just really hustling and bustling. So it's, it's, I'm curious to see what happens this summer. I mean, it's just going to get even busier and busier and it makes all these planning decisions super important, you know, working into the future. What I want to come back. Things that I've said for a long time, though, is that uh, um, this is like exponential growth. Um, it's a, this has been going on for a long time. And I, I mean, uh, I've only been coming out here since 1985. I moved here in 89. And, you know, in the mid 80s, Sag Harbor was still considered the unhampton because it was sort of little houses on crowded little side streets, a village funky kind of place. Um, in the last decade or so, a lot of these little houses that were owned by locals have been sold. Uh, they've been rebuilt with these big things that they, they sort of crop up overnight like mushrooms after a rainstorm. And, property has become insanely expensive. I mean, I can remember when houses on Main Street, you say, oh my God, that house sold for $300,000. Can you believe it? And now the same house has a $15 million price tag on it. And, and they're selling. I mean, John Steinbeck's house, I mean, his house is the size of a, the size of a two-car garage. And uh, I can't remember the price now. Is it, was it 13 million? It was somewhere in that 13, 15, something like that. Yeah. Steve Wick, I, I'm curious. So Riverhead 
Uh, this proposal uh, that Bay Street has in Sag Harbor is very ambitious for a new building and a new, it's almost a new complex uh, that's going to give them a real big footprint. Riverhead went through this with Suffolk Theater and the renovation of Suffolk Theater. I'm curious whether that spurned uh, a redevelopment of, of Riverhead in the same way. What, what kind of role has it played in Riverhead's uh, development since uh, Suffolk Theater was, was renovated? Well, it's certainly been a, a large part of that, Joe. I mean, the that whole downtown focus to to kind of go the, the the way of Patchogue to really revitalize the downtown to make it walkable. They're now building. You can go on Main Street almost every month and see a new apartment. It seems like see a new apartment building going up. Uh, I was down there the other day, and I, I totally missed. Like, there's a four story. What looks like a four story? It's probably three, but it has to be raised at the bottom because the river's so close. Uh, apartment buildings. But yeah, Suffolk Theater was a big impetus to to care deeply about the downtown and what it was. But it does not have anywhere near the cachet of, of, of Sag Harbor. Uh, the numbers you read about that Steve was just referring to in Sag Harbor just seem un, completely unrealistic. Um, yeah, Steve, we can say it doesn't have the same cachet yet. We're we're working on it as a Riverhead resident. I, I can say that I'm hopeful, and we'll 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 get there. I think I love I love downtown Riverhead. I I think it, it's really certainly up and coming. You can go, and I mean, there, there's a, a, a great restaurants, a number of restaurants. Joe, like you said, the theater has become uh, a real anchor there. Um, I'm encouraged about the future. I think getting getting those apartment buildings, while while they seem they seem mammoth sometimes, I think it really is going to bring a lot of uh, people to to the downtown on a full time basis. And you know, you're just going to see a, a a great you know 24 uh, seven village within a within a town there. But what's interesting, Steve, there's not a lot of room to grow in Sag Harbor, right? I mean, I think mean, that's that's the problem. It's a much more concentrated area in a small town rather than a little bit of a bigger town like Riverhead. Well, what does Bay Street actually want to accomplish? What are they trying to do? What is Bay Street want? What is what is Bay Street Bay Street want? They they want a, a much bigger footprint, right? They're building I mean, the, the current theater. They want to knock down and expand, or what do they want to do? No, no, they, they want to, they, they want to, they, they rent their current space. They want to move down the street um, into a building that would be about, uh, about 10, 20% larger than the building that's at that site now. Uh, and they want to have, they have one theater or yeah, one theater. Now they want to have two, they want to have more spaces. They want to, they want to consolidate all the stuff that's apparently I mean, like they, for instance, apparently rent space, I think in Calverton, uh, you know, for storage or set design and that kind of stuff. And um so this would this would change and it would shift um, Bay Street over to the other side of Long Wharf and and re and sort of spur you know the, the idea here is to spur the redevelopment of that whole side of the village. Well, it it feels like it's similar to what happened with the Parish Art Museum when when it moved out of the village it became something much bigger. Uh, it expanded its footprint and and also it expanded its its status, I think, and became just a bigger operation. Um, I think that's sort of what Bay Street's looking to do. So, OK, let's let's uh, head into the home stretch here. Let's talk about uh, what we're working on uh, right now as we head into the coming week. Ambrose, what's the big story in Shelter Island right now? Well, we're going to be looking at um, the upcoming summer season and uh, hotels and inns, the, the Ramshead Inn 
was just recently sold the, you know, using the word iconic is, is not too far fetched with that place. It's um, it was recently sold. It was owned by uh, a family for 41 years and new ownership has taken place. We're also looking at sunset beach, which is um, a resort for the rich and famous who can fly in on their, their, uh, their planes and they're opening and they were closed all last year. We're gonna do story on that, uh, as well as the Pridwin, which is not going to open. That's part of our story. They, they went through massive renovations uh, and the old Pridwin Hotel will still be closed uh, this summer. Also- Lots, lots of changes. Place, yeah, Maybe. one of the places, the Cheekwood Inn, which has changed ownership um, over the years, um, the past several years, a couple of times, and what's happening with that uh, also iconic inn on Shelter Island. Cool. We'll watch for that. Steve Wick, 30 seconds or so. What, what's, uh, what are you working on? We're going to obviously stay on the marijuana thing and follow this debate and see how, how this goes. This afternoon, I'm going out to St. Agnes, which is a Catholic church in um, Greenport that Maureen's Haven has used for homeless people to be able to stay over. And I talked to someone yesterday who said the crowds for the last year of, of people, mostly women, staying over is such that they now have to completely redo the bathrooms in the old former elementary school that's there because to accommodate more and more people. So they went from two nights a week during the winter to five nights a week to, you know, to accommodate people. And the other thing that I think is going on here that's no doubt going on in your area too, Joe, every fire department here is advertising for new members and the always reason, an issue yeah and the reason they think they can't keep young people is no one can afford to live here they afford it hooks back into affordable housing so greenports got a rush going Matata. everybody's trying to find members but young people can't possibly live here been a long time problem steve 10 seconds what are you working on <laughs> i'm working on baseball Baseball. That's right. We got a Bridgehampton's getting a baseball team back, right? They haven't That's... had a baseball team probably in 40 years. Um, Bridgehampton, which gave us Carl Yastrzemski, Red Sox star, is going to have a J- field the JV team for the first time in forever. So. I am looking forward to reading that story. So that's we're out of time for this week. This was Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Thank you uh, to my co-host, Bill Sutton, to Ambrose Clancy, Steve Wick, and Steve Coates. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Look forward to talking to you again soon.